0: Science has a definition of flow that's about 60 years old at this point, defines flow as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, flow refers to moments of rapt attention, total absorption. Where there's complete concentration of the task at hand. And you get so focused on the task that everything else just starts to disappear. Your sense of self will get very quiet. It'll diminish. Time's going to pass strangely. Most frequently, it speeds up and five hours go by in like five minutes. Occasionally, it'll slow down. You're going to freeze frame. You're going to be using a car crash. And throughout, all aspects of performance go through the roof, both mental and physical.
1: That's Stephen Kotler, author of The Art of the Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. I'm your host, Patrick McGuinness, and this is FOMO Sapiens. When the world's spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is a show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO, FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO sapiens. And today we're going to talk about peak performance. Now that is something that I got to honestly say sounds a bit elusive at times, but we all know we want it. It is a FOMO driver. It is the unicorn of life skills. But guess what? It's not as hard as it sounds. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, I have Stephen Kotler here to talk about it. Stephen is an author, an award-winning journalist, and the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He has written 12 books, including the national bestsellers, The Future is Faster Than You Think, The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire, Abundance, and Bold. So he's prolific. And you've probably read one of his books, actually. He has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. And he has been translated into more than 40 languages, which is that's a lot, by the way. And he has appeared in more than 100 publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Wired, and Time. Now, in our discussion, we're going to talk about how to amplify productivity, improve decision making, and heighten creativity to persevere during the pandemic and beyond, because these are things you're going to need no matter whether there's a pandemic or not. And basically, what we're gonna talk about is flow, which is a critical concept in this book. His new book is called The Art of the Impossible. And this book delves into how to decode motivation, learning, creativity, and flow, which were previously thought of as unteachable skills. But as you'll see in the interview, if you follow Stephen's strategies, you can integrate flow into your life over and over again. It's basically a renewable resource that drives productivity and, most importantly, well being. And by the way, if you, if you wanna give me some flow, Head over to the button on your podcast app and subscribe and share this episode with somebody who needs flow in their life and ask them to subscribe as well to the podcast. Maybe even give me a review and a rating. It would mean so much to me. I hear back from you. Uh, People write, they give me feedback and more subscribers means more people get to hear the show, which makes me feel like I'm in the flow. And for all of you who've already subscribed, thanks for doing that. And now onto the interview. So early in the book, Stephen writes that the only thing more difficult than the emotional toil of pursuing true excellence is the emotional toil of not pursuing true excellence. I thought that was a really striking idea. So to start our interview, I asked Stephen to unpack that for me.
0: It's not a new idea. Uh, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, explained it uh, in the 50s by saying whatever a person can be, they must be. Humans evolved to go after, sort of to rise to their full potential, to tap into their full capability, and there are significant consequences if you don't use the system for how it's been designed, and and that sounds weird. There are eight major causes of depression. Two of them, genetics and trauma, get the most attention, Um, but genetics alone will never cause depression or anxiety, and trauma as a general rule leads to post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the other six categories are what happens when you fail to optimize intrinsic motivation the way it's been designed to be optimized and things along those lines It's a breakdown in the same system that allows us to tackle high hard goals which we're built to do if we don't, it starts breaking down on us and for with significant consequences <laughs>
1: When I read that, what I thought, and I'm curious what you think about this, is, okay, pursuing true excellence sounds like something for the very few. Like, that is that is sort of like, you know, your Olympic athlete, your CEO of a major company, but I guess what you're saying is this, this is something that needs to be universal. So how, how does somebody who, you know, just kind of has a normal life integrate the idea of true excellence into their own life?
0: That's an interesting question. I think most of us, have a thing or two that we do. Maybe it falls into the hobby category for us, for that, for that matter, that we would love to be great at. I haven't met too many people who don't have one or two things like that. Um, and this essentially the system is built for that and and to handle that capacity. It's interesting. Um I the the more important point though is and, and this is a point I make throughout the book, which is The book is about people who are really interested in tackling high, hard, true goals, right? What what we might call true excellence. But it doesn't matter because peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology work for us rather than against us. So if you want to have an easier time at work on Monday, you want to make better decisions on Tuesday, you want to be a little more productive on Wednesday, maybe some creative problem solving on Thursday, take your pick, the same tools that allow us to achieve pure excellence, true excellence, are the same tools that we can use to improve our performance at any level. That's the only toolkit there is,
1: which is our biology. You talk about how you came into this world of looking at extreme performance, and you use the term extreme innovation. And it started out, interestingly enough, wasn't in a lab. It was in the world of extreme sports, and you were a journalist covering it. So just to get, get us kind of in your head and how you were called to do this type of work, how did you arrive to the place you are today?
0: I became a journalist in the early 1990s, and journalism was an astounding career because you get to kind of exploit your curiosities, right? Anything you're super passionate about there, uh, you, c- you could write about. It. And I was super passionate about psychology and neuroscience, predominantly neuroscience. I was fascinated with how humans work, and neuroscience seemed to unlock a level of, of kind of human mechanism that was super interesting to me. And on the other side, I was obsessed with action sports adventure sports rock climbing surfing skiing snowboarding and the like and this was the early 1990s these sports were just kind of nascent activities the gravity games was just starting the x games had just been launched and there weren't a whole lot of writers who knew much about these sports and i did and i was super curious so i You know, was lucky enough to basically spend the better portion of a decade chasing athletes around mountains and across oceans. And as you pointed out, the 1990s is often considered the great era of impossible in action sports, where more impossible feats, meaning things that were believed never going to happen, never been done, never going to be done, weren't just being done. They were being iterated upon. And this caught my attention for all the obvious reasons. Like it just, it didn't make any sense. Waves that had been 25 feet, and that was the max we could surf. Suddenly, were 100 feet tall, and like everything was happening, um, like that across across the boards in all of these sports. So it, you know, it begged an explanation. But more important was that there was a real everyman effort to what was going on. The, the athletes I knew who were sort of reinventing the limits of human possibility. They had difficult childhoods. They came from broken homes. They had very little education. They didn't have a lot of money. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol. There was a lot of risk taking. And you know, I knew from the neuroscience and the psychology that normally when those things show up in a population, you have you know bad consequences. People go to jail. People die young. What they don't do is reinvent the. Limits of human performance over and over and over again, and that's exactly what I was seeing. So that was sort of where this started for me. I wanted to understand what I was looking at.
1: Tudo bem, meus queridos Homo Sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. but only for our listeners at babble.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babble.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. And so from there, you I mean you've ended up, you've written a bunch of books, right? And you, you've become a pretty prolific student of human performance of of neurobiology. How did you move from, okay, you have made this realization, you are, you know, you're a journalist to what you're doing today. What was the the stuff that took you there?
0: I've been a- trying to answer this question of, of kind of extreme performance improvement. What does it take to do the impossible in action sports? And I had started going into other domains. I worked for a lot of different magazines. So uh, my beat for 25 years was often those moments in time when science fiction ideas became science fact technology or in business, right? I was looking, I was interested in kind of entrepreneurs who built kind of world changing businesses in near record time and on and on. So I took this question into a bunch of different domains. and. It didn't matter where I looked, whatever domain I looked, we saw the same thing. We saw a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow so flow the the state of consciousness was the center of everybody's descriptions of what was allowing them to kind of do what had never been done before and i was obsessed with this and it was a really great time in that the the neurobiology of flow what's going on inside the brain and the body and the nervous system um was just starting to be decoded and i was sort of on the cutting edge of it i was really obsessed with it and you know over 20 years, one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. Eventually, um, you know, I teamed up with a whole bunch of psychologists and neuroscientists and and the Flow Research Collective was formed to actually study the neurobiology of flow.
1: And so in this new book, which I read over the weekend, you talk about the fact that peak performance is not driven by experience or personality. Because if you had asked me, say, Patrick, this person who's really, really good at this thing, I'd say, well, you know, they practiced a ton. And so they have a lot of experience in this area or, you know, they're just really, they have grit, right? And if, if, I mean, that's a term that gets thrown out a, a lot these days, but you talk about something different. You, you you trace it back to biology, which is, you know, for me, I, I guess I think it was part of the mix, but for you, that's really the crux of peak performance. So tell us w- why why that is is the driver of, of performance
0: one if you're looking to sort of help people get better right at whatever level um you're looking for something that 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 scales right that works for everyone and too often in peak performance somebody sort of figures out what works for them and and tries to teach other people and most of the time it's a terrible failure and often it goes horribly wrong and the reason is A lot of sort of foundational aspects of of how I would train you in peak performance, where you are on the introversion, extroversion scale, what are your risk tolerances like? These things are essentially biologically determined or set up by early childhood experience, and you can change them but slowly over very long periods of time. And it's a lot of hard work. But if you go one level beneath that, there is common neurobiology. Evolution shaped us all to work in very specific ways. And the vast majority of peak performance is just about getting the system to work as it's been designed to work.
1: So would it be fair to say, I'm just trying to process this right now, If we think about these other factors that I talked about experience or experiences,
0: I mean, mind you, like there's a, a quarter of the book that we're talking about is about learning. So clearly experience matters, skills, mastery matters, knowledge, mastery matters, expertise matters. You're still going to have to get that good at the thing you're doing. What the book is about is, Hey, if you learn in a specific way, your biology is designed to learn in a specific way. And if you use that to your advantage, you're going to get farther faster, same thing sort of across the boards.
1: Yeah. Like I guess what I, what I was thinking is we all have very different experiences. We all have different personalities, but we all have, you know, our biology is different, but we're all coming in with the same set of biological tools. Absolutely. So therefore, in terms of scalability, as you said, if we find the right way to address biology which we all share of course then you can actually find solutions and and you've mentioned flow which is really you know that's the crux of your work people throw that word around all the time i hear it a lot especially the like it's become a little bit of a, you know kind of a new agey mantra which i don't think it is can you help everybody here just so we can all be on the same page like how do you define flow
0: i don't have a definition of flow Science has a definition of flow that's about 60 years old at this point, defines flow as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, flow refers to moments of rapt attention, total absorption, where there's complete concentration in the task at hand, and you get so focused on the task that everything else just starts to disappear. Your sense of self will get very quiet. It'll diminish. Time's going to pass strangely. Most frequently, it speeds up, and five hours go by in like five minutes. Occasionally, it'll slow down. You're going to freeze frame. You're going to be using a car crash. And throughout, all aspects of performance go through the roof, both mental and physical. Now, psychologists, when they define flow, they define it by six core characteristics, ways the state makes us feel. I just mentioned those, right? There is complete concentration on a limited field. There's the merger of action and awareness diminishment of self time dilation which is a the the technical term for passage strangely uh performance spikes so much there's a sense of control meaning you feel like you're in control of things that you don't normally have control over there's a basketball player talking about the hoop being four feet foot wide or me as a writer you know where like the words are just pouring out of me and they're they're amazing and i you know i normally don't write at this level um that's very common. And finally, the sixth category is the experience is autotelic, which is a fancy way of saying the experience is so deeply joyous and ecstatic, we will go extraordinarily far out of a way to get more of it.
1: Yeah. How do I know when I'm in it?
0: So literally, if I were to use the psychological tools, now I work on neurobiology. So we work, we there's a whole list of brain and body changes that go on underneath flow. But to measure flow right now, Uh, we still use mostly psychological questionnaires and literally those six characteristics and how much or how little did that characteristic show up during an experience? But here's why, where people get totally confused, um, flow is not a single experience it's a spectrum of experiences it's like any emotion anger you're a little irked you're homicidally murderous it's the same emotion flow is the same way you can be in micro flow this is where those initial conditions show up but they're really quiet they're dialed down to one or two so this is you go to work you sit down to write a quickie email and you get sucked in you end up writing a whole essay a couple hours go by you didn't even notice and maybe your whole sense of self didn't totally vanish but when you pop back into consciousness you're like holy crap i, I gotta run to the bathroom so bodily awareness got really you know turned down a lot that's micro flow the other end of the spectrum macro flow this is you know, a full-blown quasi-mystical experience. In fact, people thought macro flow was a spiritual or religious experience, meaning common to spiritually religious people until the 1950s, until they found uh, flow in a big group of uh, atheists. They were studying. Maslow was studying high achievers in the world. He was looking at a ton of high achievers, and they all found ways to use flow to kind of drive their life and drive their success, and they were all atheists. And so suddenly uh we we tossed at the original term had been mystical experiences william james when he was writing about them on the varieties of religious experience you know or was talking about it that way maslow replaced the term with peak experiences and then chick sent me high me high chick sent me high the psychologist who worked on it next started calling them flow for a reason so he went around the world this giant study tens of thousands of people and he talked to all these people about times in their life when they felt their best and they performed their best and so this is one where we learn that flow is universal shows up in anyone anywhere provided certain initial conditions are met and two it's where the term comes from because in every interview basically people said the same thing they said when i'm performing at my best, I'm in this altered state of consciousness where every decision, every action flows seamlessly, effortlessly, perfectly from the last. So that's where the term comes from. It's sort of a phenomenological description of the experience or how the state makes us feel.
1: Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. One of the things that I, that I read in, in, in the book is that if you if you do this right, you can actually be five times more productive which is amazing, right? And you, you'd be able to substantiate that. So I show up in your office. I've got your book in your hand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. But I say, Stephen, how do I get started? What are the kinds of things I need to do to achieve this objective? Where 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 can I start? What are the kinds of things that I need to do?
0: When it all is said and done, there are about six things you want to do every day and about seven things you want to do every week. And of the six things you want to do every day, a lot of them fall into this category. There are things that positive psychologists talk about as the positive psychology basics and this is if you want to perform at your best there are certain physical requirements you're going to need certain amounts of energy there are certain cognitive requirements before you can even sort of get into the game there's about six of these on the physical side you need seven to eight hours of sleep a night you need good hydration and nutrition and uh really robust social support around you um got to spend quality time with people who love you um because it it, it really has an impact on our energy that's on the physical energy side that's like you you want to sort of start there because you need the energy to drop into flow Concurrently you need to calm down anxiety We tend to run hot especially these days so usually there's there's three different ways you can really sort of calm your nervous system down either a five minute gratitude practice 11 minutes of mindfulness breath work respiration or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise and normally i tell people hey under normal conditions do one a day all you're doing is calming down your nervous system you're trying to flush cortisol and norepinephrine from your system because if there's too much in your system it's going to block flow and it's going to block a lot of other peak performance things under normal conditions, do one of those a day. If it's a crisis, if you're running really hot, do two of them a day. So that's where I always start people. That's the, one of the easiest places to go. Another place that I like to start people, because this is very counterintuitive, so I'll explain why. Everybody has what's known as a primary flow activity. This is that thing you did throughout your life, and the minute you you start doing it, you just drop into the zone. For me, it's skiing. 90% of the time I go skiing, I'm going to drop into flow. It's just sort of an automatic for me. For some people, it's dancing to hip hop or dancing to salsa or walking their dog in the woods or hiking up mountains or doing yard work or horseback riding or gardening or take your pick. The list goes on and on and on and on. But we all know what I'm talking about, basically. And we also know that when we become adults, we get responsible, we get spouses and jobs and kids, and that activity is what goes by the wayside, right? We have to put away childish things is what we're told. And from a performance standpoint, it's a disaster. It's a disaster for four really important reasons. The first is, before we actually get to the reasons, it's worth talking about what flow amplifies because it's quite a bit. You, get, you see a boost in motivation, in grit, in productivity, as you mentioned. Creative problem-solving, all aspects of creative problem-solving are increased. Empathy, environmental awareness, accelerated learning uh, goes up as well. We also see cooperation and collaboration increase. So it's a big suite of things. Okay, now that that's said, what do we get by doubling down on our primary flow activity? First thing is this flow is a focusing skill it's the, it's a way of using your brain to focus attention it's mindfulness is a different kind of focusing skill they do overlapping things to the brain they're not identical states at all um, but they're similar similar in that they're focusing skills and similar in that practice makes perfect right the more you practice mindfulness the easier it is to drop into a meditative state so going and getting in a flow state while skiing on monday is going to make a big deal it's going to help me get into flow tuesday wednesday thursday and friday at work right it transfers the more flow you get the more flow you get that's the first reason the second reason is as we drop into flow There is a global release of nitric oxide. It's a gaseous signaling molecule sort of everywhere in the body, in every cell in the body. What it does is it flushes stress hormones out of our system. So flow resets the nervous system sort of back down to zero. This is really important. We talked earlier, anxiety blocks performance. These days, most of us are hyper aroused, right? We're running hot and we need to calm down. So this will automatically do it. Even better, uh, creativity and but this is depending on whose numbers you go by it's a 400 to 700 percent spike it's a huge spike but teresa Mobble at harvard discovered that that heightened creativity is going to outlast a flow state by a day maybe two so you go skiing on monday or whatever that heightened creativity is going to last through tuesday possibly into wednesday the same thing with the really good mood not only does flow reset our nervous system but it fills us with these kind of pleasurable reward chemicals. That make the state the most enjoyable state on earth but that good feeling outlasts the flow state as well so the benefits are significant by the way all the neurochemicals that underpin flow also boost the immune system that's an that's an also a bonus i guess i never think about health but it really does matter and uh so you get that as well but this is a thing we stop doing um as adults and it's such it's so important. The research shows you don't even have to spend that much time on your primary flow activity. If you can devote, you know, an afternoon a week is ideal, but you can split that up however you want, basically, um, just enough that you're dropping into flow more consistently on a regular basis. It really helps. So I know those are really counterintuitive places to start, but that's a, those are really simple places. And The next place I would go, this is long and complicated and sort of outpaces the show perhaps, is there are 22 known triggers of flow. And if you want more flow in your life, this is where you go next. You start working with these triggers. And that's a lot of the work we do with clients at the Flow Research Collective.
1: So I imagine that, you know, if you, it's sort of like, um, I remember when I first tried to meditate and it was really difficult, right? And then I just did it every day and every day. And then eventually you can, you can meditate with with much more ease, but also you can bring that mindset into other parts of your life. So once you cultivate flow over here and the thing where it sort of naturally resides within you, and if you created the right conditions, then you can port that over to other parts of your life. Is that, is that kind of the, the big goal?
0: The big goal is to, I, I think, uh, depends on the person, depends on what you're interested in doing. If you're interested in maximizing flow in your life, these are a pl- couple of places to start Um, what I would start doing is exactly what I said a a minute ago. I would start working with the flows triggers and, and building, uh, building kind of your life and the way you approach your life around those triggers. Um, as I said, I would also, you know, go through some of the onboarding material, uh, in the art of impossible that helps you sort of align intrinsic motivators of curiosity, passion, purpose, and autonomy, mastery are pointed in the same direction as your goals. All all those things are, they're kind of foundational work also for peak performance. So there's a little bit of stuff to do, but uh, not overwhelming and accessible to anyone.
1: And you put together uh, an online assessment, is that correct? That people can go to and actually sort of check out.
0: There are about six major flow blockers things that tend to stand between people and more flow. And we built a diagnostic, which you can find at flowblocker.com. Um, pretty self-explanatory. And that'll just tell you, hey, this is the thing that's standing sort of mostly in your way. Here's how to get get rid of it. Um, that's also a useful place to go.
1: All right, so go check that out. Also check out stephencodler.com and the Flow Research Collective. The name of the book is The Art of the Impossible. Stephen, thanks for being here. Patrick, thanks for having me. FOMO Big News. We now have a brand new website, so head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGuinness, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City.